This podcast is brought to you by Online Retailer, Australia's leading retail tech conference, expo and networking organisation. Recorded at the Online Retailer Conference in 2016, here we chat with world-class digital leaders to bring you industry insights, practical examples and actionable ideas from our incredible community of retail renegades, marketing masters and creative entrepreneurs who all want to do retail business big. We want to extend the conversation after the event and to keep exploring where the future meets retail. So let's talk shop. Hi, and welcome to the Online Retailer Podcast. I'm Kylie Lewis. And in this episode, we're going to be talking with Brian Spaley from Trunk Club um, and also from Bonobos. And we're going to hear a little bit about his uh, entrepreneurial journey in both of those businesses today. So welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me. Uh, our absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming all this way to have a chat with us. Um, now, we've just had a fantastic uh, presentation with you on stage at Online Retailer where you were talking about your founder stories, pretty much of the last two businesses that you've been sure. involved with. Um, so I, I really just wanted to tap into that and have a bit of a chat to you and and take it back from the very beginning of when you first had the idea to start Bonobos and how that all came about. Sure. So I, I was... Um perennially challenged at finding trousers that fit and I came up with this idea to kind of come up with my own version of a better fitting pair of pants and uh, luckily kind of stumbled upon uh, a sewing machine through a girlfriend started tinkering that turned into a prototype that turned into selling trousers out of the trunk of my car and then you know having having a a wonderful roommate who was also a startup sort of driven type potential entrepreneur get involved and sort of partner up to really go after starting a company. I mean, there's a big difference between having a hobby yeah. that you are good at something and yeah. like turning it into a business, right? right? Every kid tastes their mom's cookies and yeah. like, you should have a store, right? <laughs> yeah. But like yeah. your mom might not want to bake cookies for everyone else, exactly. right? So yeah. I, think, I think you have to kind of evaluate how relevant your idea and your passionate about something are other, do other people have that problem, right? And so you talk about product market fit and figuring out if you have it Mm -hmm. and trousers were pretty straightforward. Make a bunch of them, see if they sell, if they do rinse and repeat and learn. And if it keeps working, maybe you can turn it into a company, Yeah, you know? So that's how I, that's how I got started. Yeah. So that, that's a, uh, that's a pretty big stretch because at the time you were, you were working full time doing, Oh, equity analyst at the yeah, time? Yeah, well, I was... So when I first started sewing Bonobos, I was uh, an investor. I was in a, at a private equity firm in Boston. And so I was really just sewing and tinkering after work in my spare time. A couple years later, I went to business school at Stanford. And it, it, it's in Silicon Valley. It's in a community that really fosters entrepreneurship. I looked around... Everyone was talking about startup this and um, software as a service and Facebook and social networking. And I was just thinking about trousers. <laughs> so so it, it felt like a low-tech way to participate in the high-tech world. Yeah. And to be fair, there's some pretty interesting technology we've built around um, both Trunk Club and Bonobos, the two companies I've started. But I also didn't have to feel like I was doing the most high-tech thing to feel like I was learning a lot about building a business, right? And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a big. It was a big risk to get off of that more risk-averse path of just you know go to school, work hard, get a job in consulting or finance, work hard, get promoted, move up, go to business school, go back to one of those industries. So yeah. there was that leap where yeah. I decided I was going to be a full-time like 
fashion designer and and a retailer and I'm glad I did it, but it was scary at the time. Yeah, completely scary. I mean, equity analyst to sewing pants, like that's that's a big leap. Um, yeah. And so you were tinkering about tinkering about after work on the weekends. You was you were then starting to see test the idea with friends and family. Yeah. So really, what happened is when I got to Stanford, I started making pants and selling them, mm-hmm. and and I knew that um, if people came back and bought more, multiple pairs, yeah, that I had a good fit with my market, and and I saw that happen, and people people got really excited about the product, and so I was able to um, gain confidence that this was something that was worth investing all of my time, not just my spare time, yeah, in yeah, and so I'm I'm actually just curious about the idea of thinking when you're an equity analyst and you're working in financial markets, your career's pretty set. Like it's lucrative, it's ongoing, you can see the path in front of you. Yeah. The jump to doing something completely different, unknown, yeah. out of your skill set, you know, I'm not sure if the valuations get anywhere near the kind of money that you would necessarily be working if you stayed in the financial markets. Yeah, like that's a you know, I mean, it's a great, it is It is exactly the thing I struggled with the most, Yeah. right? And at the time when I left um, finance to do bonobos full time. I was making five hundred thousand U.S. dollars a year. So, yeah. like, I, and, and not to brag, it just it yeah. shows you. Yeah. So then my startup salary for the first two years at bonobos was seventy thousand dollars. Yeah. So I took a, a eighty percent pay cut, and there were some perks, you know, some free pants, yeah. <laughs> uh, some you know, going to I went to Heidi Klum's birthday party in New York. Like yeah. you, you meet you meet cool people. You yeah. get to do a little sexy stuff. But yeah. at the end of the day, like. You're scrapping by in Manhattan on that much money. I think, I think, so things have worked out well for me financially. Mm. And I think uh, because we sold the second company I started for a very large price and, and I owned a small part of that. And so finally kind of had um, a major liquidity event. And I think what I've learned in that process, and which, which I did not know in my late 20s, was like m- money is helpful up to a point, mm-hmm. but it, it it really is not going to make you happy. Mm-hmm. The fun part is the journey, mm-hmm. and I did not really enjoy my work every day in mm-hmm. finance. I felt like I was learning. I mm-hmm. felt like I was moving forward in life. I felt like I was preparing a, a stable financial future, but I wasn't passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, I looked at the more senior people at my firms. Um, first, I started at Bain as a consultant, and then I went from Bain to private equity as a, you know, as an analyst. And um, I looked at the partners at those firms, and I thought, I, I don't think that's me. Uh, but when I would go to conferences and see CEOs speak, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to build something and, and run something. And so for me, it was kind of like getting comfortable taking that risk. And it was scary, but also knowing you probably don't close all the doors I'm going back to something more lucrative if you need to. Yeah. Right. And and uh, you know I I've learned at this stage uh, it's really about the journey and about building things that makes me happy. Yeah. And I think as long as I get to do that, who cares how much money I make? I mean, as long as there's you know yeah. food food on the table and yeah. shelter and those yeah. things. But you know you're not going to starve. We live in you know Australia, America. They're two of the wealthiest countries in the world. Right. It, it, yeah. you're going to be fine. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kudos to being able to take such a big risk. Um, Thank you. And that's obviously, you know, that entrepreneurial drive was in there. Um, well, you have to be careful. I mean, if you have a high paying job that you don't love, you know, you're subject to getting stuck there. Yeah. And it gets harder every year to mm. take that risk. Mm. Mm. 
So let's go back. You're selling pants out of your car. You're at business school. Um, you've got a great roommate um, who is encouraging you to be risk-taking and to think about commercializing this yeah. idea. Yeah. Um, the two of you end up building Bonobos together. Yeah. What happened next? Well, after a couple years of you know being full-time in the business and living in New York, we got to a, a juncture where our partnership basically failed. Uh, mm. I, I was really struggling, and I, I think Andy was struggling too to be a good leader and a good manager, but I, I think I was struggling even more. And he said to me one day, I think you should leave the company. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't out of the blue. It, it wasn't a huge surprise, but it was still a, a very uh, traumatic experience to feel like, it's like a breakup, right? It's yeah. like, I don't love you anymore. Yeah. I don't want to be married to you anymore. Because yeah. it's really a founding partnership at a rapid growth startup is is like a marriage. Mm. And so um, as anyone who's been divorced can tell you, there's there's different phases. Mm. And the, one of the first ones is just embarrassment, having to tell people, right? Mm. You Telling your mom after you stood at the altar and, you know, it's like, mm. so it was really hard for me. But, um, you know, Andy and I were both pretty nice to each other and graceful in the process. It was sort of like an amicable divorce. And... Um, Soon, soon after, I got uh, another opportunity to take another swing in that Bonobos kind of or Trunk Club um, was this tiny little business that needed a founding CEO, and uh, some investors said, "If you take over, we'll put a million dollars in." And the company was tiny. I mean, it was literally tiny. It had one full-time employee. So I had a chance to become a founder mm. again mm. a couple months later, mm. and I took it. And I remember talking to my older brother about it, who's far more risk-averse than I am and, and, and very successful in his own career. And he said, that sounds like a good idea. Like, go do it. You know, so, so the people that were around me and my loved ones were telling me, go, you know, go for it. Go build something. Do, try again. Like, you've worked so hard. to. You've learned a lot at Bonobos. You may feel like you failed, but you've learned a lot. And I think... Um, I think that's true. You know, I think I think the the humility that I brought to my second company, having really struggled at certain things in my first, combined with the experience and the seasoning I developed, were two of the things that really helped Trunk Club succeed. Mm. And uh, and I, it's not like I would be, was perfect overnight at all these different things, but I, I learned. I made a lot of mistakes, and I knew I wasn't going to make a lot of those mistakes again. Yeah, right. So I want to get back to that, but just before before I ask you that question, when you're in that middle of I'm not in I'm, I'm not in Bonobos anymore, and I've you know as you said to some extent the partnership failed, and sitting in that failure, what was that like? That so uh, you know, I felt I felt embarrassed. I felt anxious. I felt nervous about what I was going to do next um, because, as we discussed, I'd taken this risk, and then it, you know things weren't really working out for me. Um, and I I I didn't feel remorse over taking the risk. I've never looked back, even at like the tougher times. I I, I didn't ever think to myself, oh, I really wish I'd stayed in finance. I was pretty confident that even though I had struggled in my role, that I would still um, emerge in a better place for having worked so hard and learned a ton. But it was scary. Mm -hmm. It was just a scary time for me and, and, um, and embarrassing. Embarrassing to call friends and family and say, I'm leaving this company I started. And what did you do to get through it? Like they're, they're pretty dark days, right? I've had, yeah. I've been through that myself. And yeah. I so I, I, I started seeing a therapist in New York and I got help and it wasn't like I was this horribly sick person who needed medication, but like 
I, I, I had some growing up and learning to do, yeah. and everybody does, yeah. um, and I think I, I didn't come from a family where asking for help comes as naturally, mm-hmm. and talking about feelings comes as naturally, and I think um, as a result, uh, it was an area where I had some development to do around getting more comfortable just admitting like, yeah, I'm sucking at this, or I, I need help, and, and, and not being too embarrassed about it. and. In hindsight, I've learned that, you know, vulnerability is strength and um, being able to share what you're struggling with is, is endearing. Now, you don't want to be that person who every time you sit down with your best friends, it's all about you and, and the <laughs> sky is falling and we all have friends like that yeah. that we kind of groan when the text message comes in. Yeah. But, um, you know, as someone who in many cases in relationships with friends and, and loved ones was, you know, kind of a perennial optimist and a happy person, like I think people were endeared to the fact that I was willing to share that I had really failed at something. And I think in a way it brought people closer to me versus made them, you know, not want to be my friend because I was a failure. Right. So that's an interesting lesson as well. So vulnerability is your greatest, most accurate measure of courage. I'm not sure I would say um, it, it is the greatest and most accurate. I would say, I think, um, when you're a high performing, high achieving, ambitious person, the ability to combine that confidence and belief in yourself with an ability to share when you're struggling with something is endearing and, hu- and it's, it's, it's a human condition that y- you're more authentic mm-hmm. and people I think want to help you more mm-hmm. if you're willing to ask for help, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And acknowledge some of your flaws. Yeah. I think about my own team right now. I got 40 uh, sales leaders that report to me. And the ones that say to me, look, I'm really struggling with mm. X, Y, or Z. Can you help me get better at that? Absolutely. They impress you more yeah. than the ones who who might cover over or paper over some of their weaker spots. Mm. And I think that, so I, I do think, and, and I think that's not the most intuitive thing, especially for young people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And especially when um, growing up in in this environment where we we were so sucked into social comparison so much and it's it's all about you know having an impression of feeling like we're on top of things and that we we know our stuff and yet digital moves so quickly um, in particular that it's it's impossible to be across everything it it remind what you've just said also reminds me of jim collins um and in his book good to great and he talks about level five leaders having um ferocious will coupled with personal humility and you know the level five leaders who build good to great companies those are the two aspects that go together so just picking up on your story heading heading into trunk club you've had this period of reflection of um what you've learned what did you go into trunk club in your mind thinking this is what i'm going to do differently these are my lessons that i've learned well uh, the first one would be that once you're the CEO, you don't have to tell everybody. You don't have to reinforce that ever. I mean, people know you're in charge, right? And I think I I think leadership is largely around quietly accepting that responsibility and then being willing to role model in the very early stages everything you'd like other people to be. So in my case, like I want my team to be articulate and sound uh, very thoughtful and intelligent when they talk about clothing with our customers. I want us to really be differentiated versus somebody who's an hourly clerk at a store. Mm. 
So it means I've got to hold myself to that high standard. So I sell a lot. I still work with customers and I role model the way I want to work with them and how I build their wardrobes and how I speak to them and stay in touch with them. You have to be willing to do that hard work in the trenches, I think, to inspire your team to also behave in that same way. And I think I think it's different if you're taking over for, um, you know, a huge company like BHP, you know, mining giant, you know, if you're a $20 billion mining giant, then like you have different needs as a CEO. But if you're a founder of a company and you're building a young team of hardworking people, you have to be willing to work harder than all of them. And you have to be willing to give them most of the credit when things go well, because you're the CEO and everybody knows if the company does well, it's largely a reflection of your own ability to kind of move people in the right direction. And that sort of servant leadership and sort of starting those conversations with people that are joining the team in a way for example, how can I help you be better at your job? Um, and, and taking on a mindset that, um, I'll give you an example. Um, when, when someone's struggling, the very first conversation I usually have with them is not, hey, you're really struggling, I need you to do better. It's, how do you think things are going? Right. It's it's like let's let's uncover how this person what's what's going on in their world and listen and and I think by doing that you build some compassion maybe even some empathy, but my good friend likes to say um, it's far better to be compassionate than empathetic because if you come across someone in the road who is got a boulder on top of them and going to be run over by traffic like you want to be compassionate and save them you don't want to be empathetic and lie down and put a boulder on top of yourself right, and get right. hit right like yeah. so so when you know like it's it's good to help people but you don't necessarily need to feel all of their pain mm-hmm. but i i used to think like if someone joined our team like bonobos i'd be like well then i'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to go do it mm-hmm. and now i've realized like that's, that's that's just not the model that works and maybe this is super obvious to everybody else but you know I largely think being a good leader is about proving to people that you're willing to do anything you're asking them to do mm-hmm. and that you're capable of making great decisions. And over time, your pattern recognition is excellent. And so people learn to trust you. Mm-hmm. And so the guys that have been on my team, the men and women who've been on Trunk Club's team for six years now, have a lot of respect for me. Mm-hmm. They've seen what, I, what I've helped us build. Mm-hmm. But they also get a ton of the credit and, and they've taken on a lot of leadership roles that I used to have. So mm-hmm. I think that trade-off of like, I'm gonna show you over time that I can lead us to a good place. And then when you show me that you're a capable team member, I'm gonna give you as much of the responsibility as possible. That's like this virtuous cycle that builds great teams and great companies. And I think, I think it's, uh, Maybe it's obvious in some cases, but it's, it's not the easiest thing when you're in charge to also work the hardest. This is the funniest thing about um, the misnomer. People love to say, oh, you're an entrepreneur. It must be great not to have a boss. It's like, that's, it's, it's actually far more crushing than happening. Because you have a boss, you do your job, you can go home yeah. and relinquish with responsibility. But yeah. when everybody looks to you as the leader, you never have time off, right? Now. You can set your own schedule and you have some flexibility and you can create your own culture. But one of the biggest jokes I think of being a, a founder and entrepreneur is people think, oh, like then you don't have to work as hard because you make your own schedule. It's like, no, you're working around the clock because you've taken on this crazy responsibility. You're accountable to everybody. You're accountable to everybody. That's right. And you have to be willing to work really hard Yeah. and, and not think that you are entitled to things that you know, you know, you probably probably set the wrong example for your team. Yeah. So um, on the trunk club story, then the the you've you've been 
put into the position of heading up this um, fledgling startup. Mm -hmm. You've been able to bring your experience from Bonobos. But I think what was interesting was then you were able to tap back into your financial background and and, um, training. So what happened next in the Trap Club story? Yeah, so um, we... Well, look, I, I mean, the beautiful thing about Trunk Club is it was really rocky first few months as we kind of figured out what the business was about. And then we set a course in, in you know, for six months in and really sailed that course very, very straight and narrow and, and focused, really focused on um, just delivering a great experience to guys who wanted new clothes. Just and so what a great was that experience? experience? How did so you- we put stuff in a box, we send it to you, you keep what you like, you send back what you don't, and we listen and we get better. So... Not every box that you open up is going to have the perfect pair of jeans in it. But when we do find a brand that works, we then know, oh, and this other brand will work well for you too. Mm-hmm. And, oh, we've learned that you happen to look great in sweaters and vests, mm-hmm. but not as good in knits, and here's why. Because of the way your body is shaped. And mm-hmm. guys, guys are not experts. You know, you don't give yourself a physical. You go to a doctor and get a physical. You don't clean your own teeth every six months. You don't change your own cavity, right? Like you go to someone who does it every day. And so I think really taking over a wardrobe for somebody takes on, when you manage someone's outfits and their image, and like, it's a really important, it's a really important job. And if it's done well, the results can sparkle. Mm -hmm. We all know, all you have to do is walk through an airport to see a ton of guys who have crappy clothes on, right? Yeah. And yeah. we also know what what it, uh, what a difference it makes when a well-dressed man walks into a room, right? You're just far more likely to be inspired to by that person to buy something from them, to want to be their friend, etc. It's not about being good looking, it's about finding the right stuff that fits you and who you are. Mm-hmm. And retail and, and mall shopping doesn't serve guys mm-hmm. that well. And so the part Apart of the business- from the seats that they have for them to sit down while they wait for their yeah, girlfriends yeah. to try things. Yeah, out. but we, but we, you know, we we've trebled that. It's not a seat; it's a comfortable leather couch, and you have beer and wine yeah, and so scotch. Yeah, so talk about and, your clubhouse. Yeah, so so half the business is we send you stuff, you keep what you like, you send back what you don't. The other half is we've got these marvelous showrooms where you can come in and have this wardrobe building consultation in person, and it's it's like going to. It was recently described in Vogue magazine as Epcot Center for Metrosexuals. And I thought that that was really funny because, it, you know, it is this magical kingdom of, like, getting great clothes and having a good experience. But it's not cliche. It's not like, oh, there's a couch and football on TV because that's what guys want. Like, no, guys want guys want to look good. They're willing to invest the time. The problem is when you do it, you you have to go through the makeup department and up two escalators to find the men's department. Yeah. And then who knows if you're going to find a helpful person and by the way, then you're dehydrated and hungry and thirsty and like you come into trunk club, you sit down and you have you have one-on-one uh, personal styling. And I think that's a really important component of, of what we do. Moreover, we've built a lot of technology that enables us to not start over every time you come in. So it's as simple as, you know, in the very early days, whenever a guy came in for a fitting, as we call it, I would print out a piece of paper that showed everything he'd ever bought from us and what size and everything he'd ever um, returned in a trunk. Mm. So I knew what worked and what didn't. I had that that point of departure. Not starting over Mm. saves you so much time in a world where you're trying to put people in great clothes. And builds loyalty. Yeah, totally. And it's it's sticky, right? And so there are many things that we still need to improve and want to improve about our customer experience, our user experience. But we do think that we're pretty far ahead of a lot of the competition. And the conventional retailer going into, uh, I went to... um, a Meyer store, department store here in Sydney yesterday and looked around and I thought like, 
cool store, but uh, there's no bar. Where do I sit down and have a beer and relax and have, you know what I mean? So I I really think we're, um, what we're doing is, is, um, is revolutionizing the way people get great customer experiences in a retail setting. Well, Nordstrom thought so. So what happened then? Yeah. So, um, four years into building the business, um, in the spring of 2014, uh, we got a phone call from Nordstrom and they said, Hey, you know, we keep hearing great things about you. And we actually also heard you're raising capital. And I said, yeah, that's true. And they said, well, let's give us an update on what's going on. And I said, I'll give you a quick update. Like things are going really well. And they said, give us a richer update. And I said, well, here's about where we are and here's what we're building. And they said, you know, we're either going to build something like that or buy it. And, um, we, we think we've identified that you're probably the only company that we would partner with or potentially acquire um and we quickly said we'll have that conversation we um we will uh we've always thought you guys could be the logical long-term partner for us and Nordstrom has a reputation for having the best customer service of any retailer so like-minded um Nordstrom's also wrestling with and challenged by the way that the consumer is you know, constantly shifting the way they want to shop, the way they want to be served. And so we have um, a simpatico there around trying to stay at the forefront of the way people buy clothes. And we knew that if we partnered with Nordstrom, they'd help us launch a women's business and continue to fund and, and invest in the growth of Trump Club. And I think in exchange, they got to acquire a business with great uh, growth trajectory. Mm. We've um, basically tripled the business since we were acquired. Mm. So we've done a great job for them. Yeah. Someone the other day, I said that at a, um, at a financial event I was speaking at, and they said, well, don't you feel like you were dumb to sell it? And I said, well, not really, because I don't know if we could have tripled without Nordstrom. Right. You know? yeah. So there's a symbiosis there yeah. that's really special. And they're great people, and they're great people to work with. And I think what they saw is like, what Trump Club's building is pretty magical. Mm-hmm. We want to own that Epcot Center for metrosexuals. And we think that with our our expertise, we can help grow it into a really meaningful uh, part of our enterprise. Yeah. So that's where we are. And um, part of the story that you were also telling earlier was just about the um, about the financial model that you had based the business on. Yeah, um, sure. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think so. During, during my talk, I, I shared uh, a couple of important... Um, frameworks for thinking about building a startup in a way that will eventually potentially lead to you being acquired. And let's face it, once you raise capital from venture capitalists or private equity, you um, you need to think about an exit because these investors are not in it for 100 years, right? They, you know, the, the time frame is typically three to five to seven years for something like this. And so um, one of the things I am very proud of is how frugal we were with the way we spent the capital that we raised. And at the time Nordstrom called in June of 2014, we had raised a total of $20 million. We had only spent just over half of it, and a lot of it, uh, what we'd spent, we had spent on inventory. So along the way, we definitely had periods of time where we were burning cash because our expenses were high as we were growing, but we also had times where we caught up with revenue and were being frugal and were you know, resisting um, you know, spending money on lots of things that might not really drive our mission forward and creative about building out our spaces and asking vendors to contribute marketing dollars and just being frugal and scrappy, I think, has served us really well. So discipline around your P&L is important. And then the other the other thing that I think um, was a lasting lesson, uh, well, there's two really. One is 
um, spend time getting to know who your potential acquirers are while you're building a business. It's not to say that you go and have lunch with someone named Nordstrom and say, do you ever want to buy us? But it does make sense to, if you can connect to a, a senior leader at a company like that, say, I'd like to talk to you about what we're building and get your advice. And I'd also just like to be on your radar because maybe there's a way for us to work together someday, or maybe there's some potential test we could run, or we should know each other. You know, just it call was, them up. It was so interesting because some of the companies I reached out to were very open to that and thoughtful, and they um, they nurture relationships with entrepreneurs. Others just couldn't have been less interested, right? I don't think Macy's even knows who we are still. And they're the largest department store in North America. I never, ever talked. No one ever reached out to me from there. But Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom, the two that I have the most respect for, both made a lot of time to get to know us and like invested along the way so that when we were in a position where it probably made sense to potentially do an, uh, an acquisition, a merger of sorts, it was not starting from scratch, mm. right? And the same thing's true in dating, right? Like someone that you get to know for a while and have a friendly relationship with could could be a better long-term mate than a person who you just like fall head over heels in love with because they're, they're good looking on a particular day, right? Like yeah. investing in relationships with people can lead to good long-term partnerships. So we, we invested in those relationships and they knew us and we knew them. And there's also this, this uh, magic around saying, this is what we're trying to build. And then two years later, you check back in and you're like, yeah, we did it. Yeah. Right. And, and believe me, people talk. So Nordstrom probably was more influenced by people telling them what Trunk Club's doing is really great than they were about me having coffee with them and telling them about what we were mm-hmm. building. And then the other, I think, important part of the component of our journey was um, not ever valuing the company at such a high price that um, that we really limited our strategic options. And so... At one stage, we raised a Series B. Uh, we raised $6 million at an $80 million valuation when we could have raised three times that much at a much higher price, 25 on 125 or something. And, you know, in retail and in a lot of other spaces, there's just not that many people who can buy you for 500 million bucks or a billion dollars. And had we raised another large round at $300 million instead of selling at $350 million, um, we would have had to find a buyer who could pay $700 million. And I have some friends in New York who run companies that have been valued at $500 million or even a billion. The companies are really struggling to grow into those valuations. Mm-hmm. It's so much better in life when you underpromise and overdeliver than when you overvalue yourself and struggle to meet those expectations. And it's not to say that I encourage people to be bad capitalists. I understand that dilution matters and you want to own a good chunk of your company, but you're far better off owning a small piece of a big pie Mm -hmm. than you are bear hugging something that's not that worth that much to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, those are some lessons learned along the way. Yeah. Fantastic. And, um, so now the trunk club, trunk club is with Nordstrom. It's continuing to grow. You've expanded into women's what's next on the horizon for you. Well, the women's business has been uh, dynamite. It really uh, explosive in its growth. Um, I I like to make these silly predictions that don't mean anything, but I tell my team like by this time next year, I bet your women's will be even bigger than men's. Yeah. Um, and you know our goal is to be a billion dollar company by 2018. Mm-hmm. So we've got three years, right? Mm-hmm. To hit that number. And that, that means we got to triple again. And I think we can do it. Um, we're opening Boston and San Francisco and Charleston clubhouses. 
Boston and San Francisco are powerhouse markets for us. Uh, we're trying to get to a point where we can really reach most of the population with one of our great showrooms. And you know what comes after those two markets? Denver, Seattle. Um, uh, we're going to do something in Michigan, we think. And then Atlanta, Miami. So there's still a lot of cities we should go to with our clubhouse. And there's, there's really two things that a, an expansion clubhouse offers us. One, the ability to work with customers face-to-face in their hometown, mm-hmm. which um, we're still only able to do that in five markets right now. And then two, um, it, it, it enables us to hire stylists who are a really important part of our growth mm-hmm. and our team um, to build a bigger team because you have access to these talent pools of there's a lot of women who want to work in Boston and San Francisco who would be great at Trunk Club, but who aren't moving to one of our cities. So yeah. it's kind of continuing to build out just the, the nationwide platform, yet do it in a way that's that's frugal and thoughtful and not you know getting ahead of ourselves. And I think um, that's really getting that balance right, staying mm-hmm. focused while while um, expanding markets and, and continuing to develop our women's business. Are yeah. next. This has been our first year in women's. We've made a lot of mistakes, not for our customers, but just learning how to the logistics, the supply chain, and partnering with Nordstrom. And I think it's teaching us both a lot of stuff, but um, a, a lot of ways we can improve. And there's there's still lots of uh, growth and upside for the business. Would you ever have a trunk club inside Nordstrom? It's a great question. Uh, we've talked about it. It doesn't seem to be the highest um, priority for Nordstrom or for us today, but the world is changing so quickly in Mm -hmm. these dynamic retail environments. Mm -hmm. Uh, One one thing I'll point out, you know, Nordstrom um, doesn't really open in markets that have fewer than a million people. And I think part of that's because um, we have a big store and that big store format, you know, really needs a big market to support it. but that, does that mean that the people of Omaha, Nebraska, like, are never going to get a Nordstrom? Are they just shopping online and at Nordstrom Rack? And is there a smaller, like, should they have a trunk club? Mm-hmm. Like, do they want a, a Nordstrom? Do they want a trunk club? So I think the, I mean, we, we might find that we're going to have 100 trunk clubs mm-hmm. 10 years from now. We might find that our growth caps out when we have 10 and that that's enough to really cover the country because our customers travel and they actually like to come see us. Yeah. So... It's it's still a dynamic time, a time where the future is bright, but um, but creates lots of new challenges and opportunities, and that's that's why it's a fun space to be in. Absolutely, right and I mean, what you've done is really created a, a painful experience into a pleasurable one. That's the goal, and um, and solved the pain points for, for for customers that you're striving to serve, and you've really blended um, you know the digital technology and all that that offers you with a real life in person physical store experience. So that model is very unique, and. Yeah. Um, well, it was scary. You know, it's so funny. Um, people in the very beginning, venture capitalists who passed on Trunk Club, who chose not to invest, often did so because we had people and inventory and these stores. When they're like, how are you different than a store? Well, I, I, it's not to say they all have remorse. I'm sure some of them, when they looked, when they looked at our success, said, well, that would have been a good investment after all. And I'm sure others said like, yeah, good. They did a nice job, but that's not what we do. We're like, we're an IT, you know, engineering focused, or we like SaaS businesses. You know, they they want things that scale. And so, um, you know, online retail sits in between true high technology and true like old school bricks and mortar business. Mm-hmm. And so, finding ways to kind of blend the best of both of those worlds and innovate 
creates a really interesting challenge. But it's not so easy to get funding from from venture money, and it's it's not so easy to compete with these guys like the established players. And so I think what the other the other lens I I suggest I take is interesting about what what we've done is um, we we why couldn't any of these great retailers have done exactly why couldn't they have built what we've built like mm. they know that their customer wants to shop in this way mm. but you know uh macy's in the u.s has like 600 stores uh, i think they're so busy building there's so much inertia in the way that they've been serving their markets and there's not as much entrepreneurship and i think that's part of what nordstrom said is like look we could try to build it but that's not that's, that's not really what we do we should just figure out who the right guy is and then buy it and support it and i think if there's advice for budding entrepreneurs in the uh, in the audience, it's like, don't think just because like someone else could do it that they're going to, right? And don't think that you can't compete with the giants, right? Yeah. And and for the first few years, we don't think any of these big guys paid any attention to us. And then the next few years, they'd say like, sure, we'll hear about what you're doing, but you're still really small and insignificant. And then one day, everything changes and they want to buy you, right? So it, Nordstrom calls. Nordstrom calls. Yeah. The call yeah. you've always waited for, yeah. right? So, and you never know if it's going to come. That's right. That's right. So from selling pants that you've whipped up on your sewing machine out of the back of your car to creating a whole new retail experience, it's been a fantastic story. Thank you so much for sharing Thanks your for wisdom and advice with us. We really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's great to be down under here in Australia. Great. Thanks, Brian. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you've loved what you've heard today, make sure you're subscribed at onlineretailer.com.au to be the first to know about Australia's best e-commerce events.